Let's do it. You are listening to Inspired by a Song, and I am your host, Jonathan E. Jacobs, a.k.a. The Vintage DJ. What is Inspired by a Song? Well, I select a song from my record collection that I assign to a writer or artist. I then ask that person to find a quiet place, listen to the song on their own, see where the music takes them in their imagination, and then write a short vignette based on what they see. Today, my guest is Kyle Jarrow, a writer and musician who creates work for television, film, and the stage. He's been called an iconoclast by the LA Times and New York's hipster playwright by the New York Times. Kyle won an Obie Award for his off-Broadway play, A Very Merry Unauthorized Children's Scientology Pageant, which has subsequently been produced all over the country. Other plays include The Wildness, Whisper House, The Turbulence Problem, Hostage Song, Love Kills, Gorilla Man, and Trigger. Kyle is book writer for Broadway-bound The SpongeBob Musical. Kyle has developed television projects for CW, Fox, FX, and USA Networks. He's created digital series Lost Generation. In addition to writing, Kyle affronts the rock band Sky Pony, which released its debut LP on Knitting Factory Records. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here in, in, in what I call the record room. <laughs> for people who uh, cannot see it, which is everybody, uh, everybody, there is a wall of records in this room, which is really quite impressive. Everybody is a blind human being except for you and I right now. <laughs> it's true. It's like some sci-fi film. We're like, we're the last two seeing. <laughs> there was a sci-fi film once, Day, of the, tri- Day of the Triffids, so that was where everyone went blind except for a couple of people. Wow because of some huge flash of light from some sort of nuclear wow. slash alien. Well, anyway, we, we could be those two people <laughs> on this podcast, <laughs> we, but we're not. We are for the next hour plus. So you're primarily a writer. I mean, I make my living as a writer. Um, music has always been a big part of my life, and I've been in bands for years, different yeah. bands. And I right. should correct you, actually, I don't front the band. My wife, Lauren, she is the lead singer. Gotcha. So I write the songs. I'm behind the keyboard. There's seven other people in the band. What are the pieces? It is, uh, there's keys, cello, bass, guitar, drums, and then Lauren and two backup vocalists. So yeah, the band has a theatrical vibe to it. And when we do concerts, there's yeah. often costumes, projections, choreography. We sort of pitch to the record company Instead of doing a tour, what if we did a sit-down show for a bunch of weeks in New York? We'll get the press from that, and obviously it's an opportunity to sell records. So they were very understanding, very cool about that, and they said, sure, as opposed to doing uh, a bus tour around the U.S. You seem to have a certain business acumen about you. How did that balance come about? I mean... We live in New York, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very expensive place to live. I have friends who live in Berlin Mm -hmm. who work one day at a coffee shop a week, and that's kind of enough to keep them going. New York, it's a pricey place. And I started to realize if I want to have time to focus on getting better as a writer, I need to find a way as quickly as I can to make some money from Mm -hmm. writing. And it it didn't happen quickly, but... Mm -hmm. I was sort of forced to have some business acumen right. to make that happen. And I feel very grateful that I have. But, you yeah. know, I'll be honest, like I have definitely taken some jobs and I'm trying to do it less and less now, but that, you know, were not necessarily the thing that I was dying to write in my heart, but right. there was a paycheck attached. And 
I thought to myself, well, I can find the thing in this idea that is meaningful to me, and it's going to generate some money, and mm. that's going to it's going to make me better as a writer just right. by doing it. What happens mid process if that thing that you connected with gets eliminated? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, like that has happened. I think you try to find another thing that yeah. you can sink your artistic teeth into. I mean, the truth about writing is, is it's a lot of time alone mm -hmm. and it's a lot of time with your thoughts. And if it feels like a chore, it is awful. Now, obviously, knowing that you're making money makes the chore a little easier, but it still feels like a chore. And so if the thing that I love gets cut, I definitely try to find something mm -hmm. else that I can be excited about in the project or it's just going to be torture to get my way through it. And listen, there have been one or two projects where it changed so much from the initial kernel, partially because of me, partially because of folks that I was working with, partially because, you know, mm -hmm. you get a lot of notes from a lot of people and sometimes things get muddy. That by the end of it, it did feel like a chore because mm -hmm. I was just trying to finish the thing and I sure. had lost sight of what it was. And you know what? Those things never turn out well. So you made a good point that writing is very, you know, isolating. How do you sort of manage the mental health of that? When I am at my best, essentially, I am alone. For me, I think the answer has been trying to have a pretty regimented writing schedule yeah. so that when that writing day is done, I can kind of unplug, which doesn't mean you're not still thinking and obsessing, but right. you at least give yourself permission to not be actively working on yeah, it. Yeah, because the creative process, especially for writing on your own, you can wake up at 3 a.m. and say, I have to write this scene right now because I know what it is. And unless you yeah. discipline yourself. I mean, I've tried down. to not do that and to yeah. say like, okay, if I have an idea at 3 a.m., like email the idea to myself and mm -hmm. I can write it tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that before I was living with someone and also sometimes when my wife's away or if I'm traveling, mm -hmm. the amorphousness became pretty intense. And there mm -hmm. were definitely 3 a.m.s where I got up and I would write and there were days when like, I didn't get nearly enough sleep. But really what forced me to do it is when Lauren and I moved in together, because it's just not fair to live with somebody and make them put up with that kind of craziness. You know, they right. generally want to be able to spend time with you at some points and hear you talk about something other than your script. And then let me just say, Lauren is your wife, Lauren Warsham, and she is actually a very established theater yeah, actress fantastic and musical performer. theater actress yeah. as well. And I know she was in The Gentleman's Guide to... She was Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Yep. She also does a lot of opera. Yep. She she did Turn of the Screw at BAM a couple of years ago. Before the band, Sky Pony, yeah. were you working together in any respect? No, actually. I mean, when we met, I was actually in a different band called Super Mirage that she was not part of. It was four dudes, very much like four, mm -hmm. four kind of shoegazing dudes, very different kind of band. We were together for about two, two and a half years, put out a record. And when Lauren and I met, I was in that band. And then a year, a little less into us being together, the band was kind of breaking up. And she, at the same time, had been bemoaning that she never got auditions for more pop or rock-based shows, that people sort of thought of her as a legit singer, I think mm -hmm. a lot because she had this experience with opera. I said something stupid, like put my foot in my mouth, like saying, well, you can't sing that way. So like, of course they don't bring you in. She actually really bristled at it at the time and was like, yeah, I totally can. 
but you know, but what we realized is like no one knew that about her. No mm-hmm. one in the community casting directors didn't know that. She just hadn't done a show like that. So we sort of cracked this idea. I was interested in creating a new band because mm-hmm. playing music's always been a big part of my life. And we were kind of like, well, could we make a project where you're the singer and it mm-hmm. ends up sort of showcasing your ability to do this different kind of singing? And for me, it satisfies the desire to write music and be in a band. So that was the genesis of it. It really was sort of the first thing that we had worked on together. And it started as just the two of us and a guitarist. And we used a drum machine for the for the beats. We did like two or three shows like that. And then we started expanding it. And now it's an eight-person band. And even though she and I started it, the other members of the band have been with us since the beginning and are very much, you know, a central part of the sound. We're usually described as indie pop. Blondie's a big inspiration. A lot of us in the band, not just Lauren mm-hmm. and I, have backgrounds in theater. So there's definitely yeah. a theatricality to the music. And, you know, a lot of the songs are sort of sung from the perspective right. of characters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Blondie's a big Does she come to the show? I know she comes to downtown theater sometimes. You know, I don't think Debbie Harry has come to see us. I would let Debbie, if you're listening right now. (laughs) Debbie. Debbie, at least check out their album. Your album is called It's called Beautiful Monster. first start writing plays um in high school actually i grew up in ithaca new york which is about four and a half hours north of new york city anyway i was really into acting as a kid and then hit puberty and my voice started to change but i did not look older so basically it was uncastable so i kind of still you know really want to be involved in that world so I started to write plays because there was a play contest at the theater that I had performed at. And that was kind of the gateway into mm-hmm. it. So yeah, but then when I went to college, I kind of thought that I was not going to pursue writing or performing. What were you going to be? There was some pressure to go down a more reliably lucrative profession. I went to Yale. So um, so a juggler. So a juggler, yeah. yeah. But you know, at Yale, like, there's a lot of kids from a lot of money, which was a real shock. It was not something I had really had experience with yeah. before college. But there's also a lot of kids who are going to make a lot of money. You know, a lot yes. of people who go into banking, who go into um, consulting. And there's a feeling when you are there, at least there was for me, that these are the future rich people. You know, many of them realize by getting into this school, if I can do well here, I'm going to get out and go make a lot of money. I remember getting to Yale and hearing these words that I'd never heard before, like summering. Like I just, I literally didn't know what that meant. People talking about having multiple houses, another concept that I was not familiar with. Like, why would you have two houses? You mean your grandparents' house? You, like, I didn't no, I get know. it. Terms like quag. People would throw these words around like, I should know what they mean. Did you feel like you had to nod a lot and try to figure out what summering meant and talk about your own version of summering? Or did you say, you know what, I'm not that guy? I think my first response was to try to fit in and then I kind of gave up on it. Yeah. And, and then I ended up sort of gravitating towards friends who were sort of not from that background yeah. for the most part. But interestingly, that's kind of what brought me back to writing because when I got to Yale and there was this sense of, okay, 
this is the place that you go and you, you become a lawyer or a doctor or a banker. That is what you do when you go to Yale. And so that was the attitude that I carried into it. And then I ended up gravitating sophomore year to this kind of artsier crowd that was a little bit less a part of the, I don't know, mainstream Yale culture or whatever. And a lot of those were theater kids. And so it ended up kind of drawing me back into doing theater stuff and into performing a little bit in college and, and then ultimately into writing. And I think a lot of people, including myself, when they get to college, they try to be somebody else first because they don't really know who they are and suddenly they're in this new place. Yeah. And I they, grew a goatee. Yeah, exactly. You try on an identity. I think almost everyone does. <laughs> Now, the guy who created SpongeBob... Steve Hillenberg. He's an animator and a marine biologist. That was his training, and then he ended up becoming an animator on Rocco's Modern Life, and then he created SpongeBob, and I think he sort of reached back to his love of marine stuff. Probably the one of the more passionate conversations that we've had was about ocean conservation, mm -hmm. and he spoke with great passion about it. His life has clearly been, in a lot of ways defined by this iconic thing that he created, but right. he's still extremely passionate about that interest that got him there. You wrote the book, which is essentially the script. Yes, yeah, structure for the SpongeBob and, and the dialogue, yeah. So SpongeBob is a cartoon character, and yeah. he is a sea sponge. Yeah. Lives underwater. Yep. He makes Krabby Patties, which is a seafood-style kind of hamburger. Yeah. Uh -huh. In an underwater restaurant. That's right. That's his employment, yeah. yeah. And he has a couple of friends, Squidward. SpongeBob thinks that they're friends. Yeah. Squidward does, does not agree. SpongeBob's sort of the ultimate optimist. So he has a love interest as well, which is like a squirrel? Well, okay, so that's actually interesting. In early, the very earliest episodes, there is a slight intimation that there's a crush. That was quickly abandoned. And, okay. and they are platonic friends. Okay. And actually, one of the things that we did when we started working on this stage version of the show was go meet with Steve Hillenberg and a bunch yeah. of the animators and talk to them about, well, what are the things that you don't do? What, yeah. are, what are the rules of this world? You guys right. have been doing this for 10 plus years. Like, what are the things you don't do? And one of the things that they said that they don't do are, are romance storylines in general. Mm -hmm. They've occasionally done them with tertiary characters, but never with SpongeBob. SpongeBob doesn't have crushes. Like, that's just right. not part of his personality. Right. And I think they realized pretty quickly that this Sandy, who's the squirrel, Sandy SpongeBob thing, just didn't really fit with the world. But I actually think it's part of the success of the show. I don't think kids really are that interested in love stories. And I, and I think also that SpongeBob has a huge adult fan base. Mm -hmm. and I think part of the reason also is that it just really stays in a zone of... Mm -hmm bonkers, absurdist, surrealist humor, because you are not in our real world. Mm -hmm. You can actually talk about things that are related to our real world in a more nuanced way, because you don't have to sort of dance around. Yeah. In the Broadway musical, there's a long dormant volcano on the outskirts of the town where they live, which is called Bikini Bottom. Mm -hmm. And it starts smoking and rumbling, and it's been dormant for like a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And they basically realize that in about 36 hours, it's going to erupt and destroy their town. So it ends up being this kind of madcap adventure 
where SpongeBob is basically trying to figure out how to stop it from erupting, but basically everybody else is deciding that they're going to evacuate. So it ends up being a way to do a story about how a society deals with fear in a fun way that feels a little bit subversive, doesn't feel like it's taking political sides in any way. And I think it would be very hard to do a story like that set in the real world. It doesn't feel like it's an allegory for Katrina. You can make it a general enough allegory that you can deal with some of these bigger themes that everyone deals with in their lives. Fear. How do you process the Mm -hmm. fact that something terrible could happen? Real world set stories, there's just so much baggage that it can be difficult to tell sort of a pure fable like that. So anyway, that's one of the great things about children's literature is it's often in this alternate reality where you can tell these really pure fables that can, I think, sometimes be a lot more profound because they are not set in our world. prior to this that was about inanimate or non-human creatures? No. This is your first This would be my first experience with non-human characters. Yeah. And how did it come about? You know, it's the process has been going for quite a few years. You know, Nickelodeon had identified that they wanted to explore developing it for Broadway, and they had gotten this fantastic director, Tina Landau, she had pitched to Nickelodeon, they had uh, brought her aboard, and then they sort of went about looking for a book writer. They asked me to come in and meet with them. There were quite a few meetings with them, with other folks at Nickelodeon, and yeah, ultimately I got the job. It's a valuable property in Nickelodeon. Oh, yeah. and they've done a good job of keeping it true to itself and not mm-hmm. allowing it to get you know how it can happen. It's somebody with a real vision creates a character, a world, and then too many people get yeah. to do whatever they want with it. The thing gets diluted. It becomes something it's not. They've been very careful not to let that happen. And, and the word becomes too much of the same. They've done a really good job of not letting that happen. And, mm-hmm. and so they were very conscious with this stage version that it's got to feel like, A, it is something that we haven't seen that justifies Mm. the fact it's on stage, but B, is not changing what's great and true about this character in this world. So yeah, there were a lot of meetings where I think they were making sure I got that message and that I was on board with that message. And and is there an aspect of this where there's a pressure of, you're basically writing the one episode (laughs) of SpongeBob SquarePants that becomes this completely other entity, another form of... Yeah, I felt a lot of pressure about being, and I think I speak for Tina when I say this too, we both felt a lot of pressure about being true to this thing that we both really love and also understanding that for it to be good, we need to make it ours to some extent. So one of the big challenges was figuring out, well, what is a storyline that can sustain a two-hour evening, whereas the average SpongeBob episode is 11 minutes? It's just a very different requirement in terms of story. And so figuring out, yeah, like how do you create real stakes? How do you create a sustainable story for two hours, but also keep the quick, crazy, surrealist pace Mm -hmm. of an 11-minute episode? And definitely her staging has inspired me, and I know that the writing that I've done has inspired her staging. I mean, we've tried to sort of play off of each other, Mm -hmm. 
talked through the story together and, and cracked the story together. It's did great. you write the lyrics for the songs or not? No, the songs are all by different rock bands. Okay. Uh, and each band, they're all original songs. Okay. Uh, and they wrote their own lyrics. Aerosmith did one, Flaming Lips did one. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, Panic of the Disco, Plain White Tees, T.I. did a song, Lady Antebellum, John Legend, Jonathan Colton, They Might Be Giants, Sarah Bareilles, Cindy Lauper, Yolanda Adams, amazing people who all said yes. And there's actually a David Bowie song in it too. It's the only song that is not original for this piece. We used a catalog song, which is not a well-known song. It's a new arrangement of an existing you said, song. Tell us what that song is. Yeah, it's is No it? Control. It's a B-side from, I think, an early 90s record. Okay. Um, I mean, does it have a rock and roll feel to it? The song? The show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very much sort of an indie rock sensibility. Yeah. When we met with Steve Hillenberg, what he said was, you know, look, if you guys are going to do a Broadway show, I want it to have an indie feel. That's really important to me. Tall order. Yeah, but you know what? That's what they've done with the TV show, and the TV show has been incredibly successful. And mm. even the movies, which are big budget, big, successful, four-quadrant family movies, there is a kind of crazy indie aesthetic to them. So I think it is possible to, to capture that aesthetic and also have broad appeal. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that's so great about SpongeBob. So we've tried to stay true to that. And, and the score... Tom Kitt is the music supervisor. He's done a good job of making it feel not schizophrenic. Which could be difficult with all these different songwriters. But what he's done is he's made sure that each songwriter's song is clearly their song. That the spirit of those individual songwriters is preserved, but that it's not super schizophrenic. Like, you know that's the Aerosmith song, but it doesn't feel like we're suddenly in a different show. The concept, though, was like sort of inspired by... Movie soundtrack, you know, movie soundtracks have songs by different artists, but, you know, whoever the music supervisor of the movie is, is generally trying to create a sound and a vibe that is consistent over the course of the film. So we figured, look, that works in basically every movie that's been made in the past 30 years. It should be able to work on stage. It's a live musical. It's performed by actors who are not they're not in bodysuits. No, they're not in bodysuits. I mean, they're not in bodysuits to look like the iconic cartoon characters. Yeah, they're all clearly human. The costumes gesture towards the iconic shapes of the characters, but they're absolutely not like foam suits at all. And I'll be honest, like one of the big concerns we had was our audience is going to accept that. And the answer is a resounding yes. Mm-hmm. You know, audiences seem really willing to go there. And actually, the characters got entrance applause. And I think part of it was like, oh, wow, that's how you've interpreted this character. But I think one of the things that David and, and Tina as well achieved was creating looks for these characters mm-hmm. that is evocative of the cartoon, but is not trying to be the cartoon. I mean, so, is this in any yeah. way like an evolution of the franchise in a weird way? I mean, not, not necessarily this is the new SpongeBob, but like the way Batman begins, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> it's like you're kind of tearing it open and keeping the essence and kind of experience it in a different way. I hadn't thought about it that way. I love that. I think that would be great. It's interesting to think about what Marvel has done. Well, Batman's obviously DC, but the Batman franchise, starting with the Tim Burton movies Mm -hmm. and then the Nolan movies, yeah, figuring out ways to take these universes and actually with sometimes with these characters do things in different storylines that actually 
couldn't have happened to the same character. But audiences are willing to go with this idea of alternative versions of the characters. I think it has shown that audiences are super flexible, actually, when it comes to stories that are derived from the IP they love. With SpongeBob, I think the audiences were super willing to go with it, actually, in a way yeah. that we weren't totally sure about. But I think they've been primed ch- for that. Children included. Children included. In fact, in some ways, the children, it seemed to me, went with it even more easily. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because when you're a kid, your imagination is a little more unbridled. You're like, you know what? If you tell me that SpongeBob and that actor is embodying the spirit of the character, that's SpongeBob to me. I think about like Disney World, right? They have like yeah. the princesses wandering around sure. and stuff. They have like multiple bells at the yeah. same time walking around the amusement park. Yeah. And it's possible that a kid would encounter two different bells yeah. within one day. But I think most kids don't have a problem with that. No. It's not like this is the real one and that's a fake one. It's like, no, they're both bells. That is a very adult issue to have. That There is a one version of a thing. Yeah. I don't think kids think that way. The more versions you can give them, yeah. the more excited they're going to be. I love I love the idea that like 20 years from now, there's going to be another SpongeBob musical with a different, <laughs> the dark, like, you know, the Christopher Nolan SpongeBob and all these different actors who have played SpongeBob will sort of be able to talk about their experience. I mean, and- we live in an era where culture is being recycled and iterated. That's just the world that we're in now. But I think that's maybe the world we've always been in. I, we've been doing it throughout all of human history yeah. you people retell each other's stories they change it a little bit writing the script and these characters were you imagining the animated versions of them when you were hearing their voices or were wow. you imagining that's a the great new... question you know one of the things that tina did that was very smart is before we even had a script she wanted to do a movement workshop so we brought in a bunch of actors who played around with physicality and Then when I actually sat down to write the script, I had a lot of those actors, or if not those specific actors, at least sort of those bodies in space were in my mind. And that was what I thought about more so than the animated characters. I mean, my first instinct would be that is a tougher structure to stick with because kind of could go a lot of different directions. The rules are still being developed. The rules of the world, Uh, whereas if you say, okay, this is Spongebob, the way he looks in the cartoon, this is Sandy, this is Squidward, that when they say something they would never say, you know it. I would actually say that those rules still apply, whether the character is the animated version of itself or the human version of itself, it's still the same character and still would react in the same way. There are still certain things they wouldn't say, certain ways they wouldn't respond. Someone could see this show who's never seen SpongeBob, never seen the cartoon. It's very important. Yeah, that's very important that they could. Yeah, and I think they can, but it's definitely something that we worked really hard to make clear. I will say this. Anytime you do any kind of art, a movie, a play, whatever, you are 
welcoming the audience into an imagined world, you need quickly to set up the rules of that world. It's easier if it's the real world, because we all generally understand those rules. So there's more of a shorthand for it. This is an imagined world. It's the same set of rules in anything, which is you need to tell me in the first five minutes, like, what is this world that I'm entering? It's just a little more complicated of a world in SpongeBob because it's an imagined one. But you have to do that work and you can't assume any knowledge in anyone. I just saw the Taylor Mac 24 hour. But he um he did have this one moment where he was talking about Romulus Linney te- being a playwriting teacher of his and saying, you've got to go slow at the beginning. Otherwise, people will be confused. Then I thought that was an interesting point of just not jumping into the world. I think you could argue the opposite yeah. too. But, but regardless, you need to give people the tools they need to understand the world. And I think there are people who do a great job, writers who do a great job of just throwing you in. You don't totally understand everything that's going on. And part of the fun of it is figuring it out. Yeah. But you definitely need to feel like you understand the rules. And if you don't, then I think you're right. People check out. They mm-hmm. get confused. Yeah. Are you the go-to guy for something in television? I think in general, I'm hired for things where they want a little bit of a sort of quirky, very specific character voice, mm-hmm. tend to skew a little younger, but within a genre, yes. I'm your guy. So I gave Kyle a song called The Girl with the Light Blue Hair by Raymond Scott and his quintet from 1939. First, we're going to listen to the song and then we're going to hear what Kyle saw. Thank you. 
Budapest, 1936. We're in the expat quarter at a nightclub, a tile floor glowing strangely in the dim red lights. A band is on stage, and the place is packed. It's exotic, a little seedy, and above all, it's smoky. Everyone's got a Viceroy or a Chesterfield in between their rouged lips. And there are lots of rouged lips, men and women both. This is the kind of place where people go to forget about the rumors of the coming war. You get the same. And now, walking across the room, there's the slender form of a woman who could not be more than 21 or 22 years old. She's wearing a tuxedo, and her dark hair is cut short. It's a flapper kind of a look. The style has hung around longer here on the continent. She's glamorous, and she's got the most beautiful eyes you've ever seen. She fixes them on this fellow sitting over by the stage, a dapper man. He's probably 10 years her senior. Slicked hair, perfect mustache. Her eyes say, come over here, buy me a drink. He doesn't need to be asked twice. As they sip their cocktails, they talk. It's all in Hungarian, but we don't need to hear the words to understand. There's a connection here, a powerful one, even though they've just met. Feels like one of those things that's just meant to be. He opens up to her about his checkered past and his vows to go straight. She opens up to him about the loss of her beloved father, who was murdered at the hands of a killer who was never caught. He responds by telling her how he lost his own parents at a young age. Her fingers brush his sleeve, his sweep across her back. Their eyes are locked. They don't realize how late it's gotten, 2, 3 a.m., they leave together, they're both a little drunk, leaning on each other for support as they make their way down this dark cobblestone street. They're unsure yet whose place they're going to, but they know this night ends with them together. He reaches out, pulls her into his arms, moves to kiss her. But just before their lips meet, she moves away. She reaches down into her jacket pocket and pulls something out a razor. And in one quick, fluid motion, she raises it up and swipes it across his neck, slicing deep. He doesn't even have time to feel the pain of it as he sinks down onto his knees. He can't make a sound, but if he could, it would be why. She answers the unspoken question. You are the one who killed my father, and this is my revenge. She wipes the razor clean, she tosses it onto his shuddering body. Then she pivots, and she walks off into the Budapest night. As she turns the corner just before she disappears from view, she passes through this pale blue patch of moonlight. And in the glow, it looks just for a moment as if she's a girl with light blue hair. Then she's gone. The music slows to a stop. Blackout.